From KHOL, this is a special bonus episode of Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole in the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. This summer, we're sharing our recent limited podcast series called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life, created in partnership with Steo in the Jackson Unpacked feed. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. Today, we continue with the fifth and final episode, Making Jackson Home. Welcome to Facets. This new limited podcast series created by KHOL and Steo features stories told by original voices of the mountain life. Educators, athletes, entrepreneurs, laborers, scientists, and ski bums drawn to live in the mountains shed light on the many aspects of humans living close to nature. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. In this episode, KHOL's Kyle Mackey digs into the history of immigration to Jackson Hole and shares stories of how Latino immigrants and first-generation residents are putting down roots and making Jackson home. Cold winter mornings in Jackson start early for Rene de la Cruz. By 6 a.m., de la Cruz is already warming up the bus he drives for the Children's Learning Center, which provides childcare and early education services in town. He checks the lights, brakes, and tires, reviews his pickup list for the day, and then starts his route from the Rafter J neighborhood, often setting out long before sunrise. We have to see in the mornings when it's dark. We see the starry sky, the moons that are very beautiful, full moons, bright moons. It's the advantage of waking up early and getting up early. De La Cruz and his partner, bus monitor Esther Montiel Moreno, greet their mostly Latino and very sleepy group of students with cheerful smiles and even songs. De La Cruz also makes his bus even more kid-friendly with a few choice decorations. These are the dinosaurs that I have here in front, two dinos and a cat. I brought them from Mexico the town where my father is from. They make these crafts, and from there I brought them and came and placed them here. And the children pass by and ask me, what are they doing here? And I tell them, they're the ones who take care of the bus at night. When the bus is here solo, they're the ones watching over the bus so that nothing happens to it and no one takes it. And they feel that it's really like that. It's the child's imagination, I think. Dinosaurs and caring for children weren't part of the future that 47-year-old De La Cruz envisioned for himself as a young man in Mexico City. But working as a school bus driver has turned out to be a surprisingly good fit. I think it's my personality to always show joy, joy at all times. 
Everyone has difficult problems, but I always try to have a smile on my face to welcome. For example, my kids who come on the bus so that they always see me happy and feel comfortable inside the bus. At any time, wherever I go, I try to have that smile on my face. The image of a Mexican immigrant driving a busload of mostly first-generation students to a bilingual preschool may not be the first that comes to mind when most people think of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. However, De La Cruz's bus reflects the reality that Hispanic and Latino residents make up about 22% of Jackson's population, according to the latest census data. Though that figure has long been considered an undercount because of unauthorized or undocumented immigration. By the way, I'm using the term Latino in this episode at the advice of K-12's Spanish language correspondent and because it's the most common way that people of Latin American descent describe themselves, according to a recent study by the Pew Research Center. But you'll hear some people I interviewed use Latinx, which is a gender-neutral alternative. Whichever term you prefer, the presence of a significant Latino population in Jackson has transformed local schools, businesses, and the broader community since the mid-1990s. And the reason why, I think from a legal perspective, we saw an influx of Tlaxacalans from Mexico was really that one person showed up, it was working well, so the next person showed up. Elizabeth Trefonis is owner and managing partner of Trefonis Law PC, a Jackson-based firm she founded in 2006 to provide services in immigration and criminal law. Tlaxcala is the central Mexican state east of Mexico City, where the majority of Jackson's Latino community trace their roots. Another major factor behind Jackson's immigration story, Trefonis says, is that worker visas were readily available in the 90s, and there was plenty of work to be found. Social scientist and Yale professor Justin Farrell expands on that in his 2020 book, Billionaire Wilderness, The Ultra-Wealthy and the Remaking of the American West. And he was kind enough to read a few passages from the book for this episode. Why did they come in the first place? The immigration story of this working poor community is integrally linked to the migration of ultra-wealthy people who brought a lifestyle that required new service industries, especially environmental, recreation, food, retail, and construction. In the wake of this huge influx of ultra-wealthy people came a surplus of low-paying service jobs needed to make possible the idyllic mountain lifestyle and elite environmentalism sought by moneyed migrants. Throughout U.S. history, people from all backgrounds have always come to the West in hopes of a job and a new future. But oftentimes these job booms end in bust, when all the gold has been mined, or the railroad has been built, or the price of oil and gas dampens the market and devastates the town. But what separates Teton County from other examples of economic boom towns in the rural United States is that there is likely no bust in sight, and the immigrant communities who have come here are here to stay. Farrell uses the term working poor to describe the experience of Mexican immigrants in Jackson because that is the reality for many families who have to work multiple low-wage jobs to make ends meet. Of course, plenty of white residents also fall into that category in this resort town, and not all local Latinos do. It's also important to note that while the focus of this episode is on Jackson's Mexican-American community, by far the largest immigrant and minority group in town, they're also not the only community of relative newcomers to the Tetons. Here's Trifonis again. We actually have a map in our lobby. It's a world map. And when you are the first client from that place on the map, you get a pin. Um, we currently do not have several African countries and Mongolia. 
Otherwise, there's a pin and everything, including some really remote islands that were really difficult for me to find on the map. Trifona says her immigrant clients have done everything from work in law enforcement to help direct some of the wealthiest nonprofit organizations in the world, based here in Jackson. But the journey to such success isn't always an easy one. My name is Marcela Vadillo. I've been living here for almost 20 years. I come from Mexico, from a small town that it calls um, San Jose Cuamancingo, which is part of Tlaxcala. I came here when I was 17 years old. Even though she was still in high school at the time, Marcela Badillo begged not to get left behind in Mexico when her mother was planning to come look for work in Jackson, partially in an effort to get away from an abusive ex-husband. It was hard for me. I wish I can go to, um, to the high school here because we come from other country, other place. We don't know how the process is to be involved to school here. And at those times, if you turn 18, you couldn't go to high school anymore, I guess. So it was hard because language, it's hard to learn. Culture is very different. Racism is hard. Everything was different food for me, even if my mom cooked Mexican food. For me, the taste, it was different. Tortillas, there was not much tortillas here. At those times, it was not much Mexican food. And we have to work. Badillo also says she suffered as a victim of domestic violence herself. Thankfully, she was able to find support in Jackson and then dedicated herself to making sure other women knew about those resources. In Mexico, it's very different. We don't have support there. So when I come here and when I noticed that there was many resources around here, I was like, I want, I would like to be a volunteer so I can support other women with the same situations. Today, Badio is a community organizer with Voices JH, a nonprofit that was formed in the early months of the pandemic to better connect local immigrants to services like COVID-19 testing and vaccinations, financial assistance for housing, and more. Jordan Rich is Director of Operations and Development for the group. She says it's also important for Voices JH to operate as a two-way bridge, allowing immigrants to express what their needs are. As long as I've worked in the nonprofit community, I have seen the struggle that organizations have faced in when they want to outreach to the Latinx community or the Eastern European community, not knowing like where and how to do that. The answer has been like, oh, like we'll call a, an existing organization that does work with that community and maybe they can promote this this event or this resource. Or like we can go flyer the different Mexican grocery stores. And that was kind of it. That was kind of like your only access points to that community. Voices is trying to break down longstanding silos in the community, which Rich says have persisted for many reasons. Language is a big reason, um, and I think trust is another. Organizations like we have in Jackson aren't always common in people's home countries, and people don't necessarily like believe that they are safe, and especially under the Trump administration, like accepting assistance became something that was incredibly scary because of the public charge rule. While some form of a public charge rule has been part of U.S. immigration law dating back to 1882, Trump-era changes expanded it to include several common health care, food, and housing assistance programs. If the government thought someone seeking admission to the U.S. or trying to get a green card was likely to use something like Medicaid or SNAP food stamps and thus become a, quote, public charge, they could be denied. 
the Biden administration has since reversed that policy, but its legacy as a scare tactic endures. Former President Trump also directed U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to pursue deportation of unauthorized immigrants without a criminal record, a 180-degree flip-flop from Obama policies. And Trifona says that led to a dark four years in Jackson. They really did seem to target our students, our J students. J is a category of visas for exchange visitors to the U.S., which can include college students, au pairs, and people doing summer travel work. Someone who maybe was brought here as a child or who even ran the border doesn't have documentation that they're here necessarily. But our J-1 students had petitioned to come to Jackson, and that was on their documentation. And so was their address. And if that address hadn't changed, it was very easy for ICE to show up. ICE then also started sending letters to people's PO boxes. Hey, come to Casper. That's not a warrant. It's not an order. It's an invitation. But a lot of our people felt it was what they might perceive the right thing, or maybe they didn't know any better, that they should go all the way to Casper. And they started their own self-deportations. The text messages, phone calls, and Facebook posts that popped up during this time, warning that ICE was in Jackson, reminded Driggs resident Lori McCune of a notorious immigration raid in 1996, when federal agents and local police rounded up about 150 workers at hotels and restaurants, sending 120 unauthorized immigrants back to Mexico the next day. So many people were detained that officials penned numbers on their forearms to keep track according to High Country News and LA Times coverage. The companies in Jackson were just appalled and people were running everywhere and hiding in freezers. They actually took a bunch of people down to the sheriff's office in dirty horse trailers, like out of Spring Creek and some places like that. It was, it was horrific. McCune is founder of Immigrant Hope Wyoming, Idaho a Christian nonprofit that provides legal assistance to immigrants with green card and citizenship applications, as well as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. McCune moved to Teton Valley, Idaho, about 45 minutes from Jackson, in 1995, and she got to know many immigrant families by teaching English language learners at Teton High School. You know, they would tell me their stories and break my heart. (laughs) So I just tried and tried to find ways to be able to help them so that they could remain here legally. Um, I wasn't always successful at that because of the situations, but, you know, over the years, we're seeing more and more people having that opportunity because they have a child that's born in the U.S. uh, 21 years ago, or, or their boss was able to help them get a green card because they had a a higher level position, like they were a housekeeper manager rather than just a housekeeper or things like that. Many of the folks Farrell interviewed for Billionaire Wilderness also reflected on how the Community Support Network for Immigrants has vastly improved, despite occasional setbacks. They stressed the importance of bilingual supporters working at agencies like 122 Resource Center, an organization that, in 2016, combined three formerly separate groups to provide wraparound services from food to financial aid and immigration support. As a result, the imbalance of knowledge and political power is starting to change. A diversity of voices are now being heard, in contrast to how things used to be when, in the words of one Latino construction worker we interviewed, quote, 60-year-old rich white guys with lots of money can go to those civic and political meetings because they're not going to their job and already own their third home here and they can get up and complain about things. 
And that kind of creates an unlevel playing field to some degree. The change looks like Badio serving on Jackson's new equity task force, the creation of which was sparked by the movement for racial justice that swept the country in 2020. Stepping into a position like that is challenging her comfort zone, but she says it's worth it. Sometimes I would like to express everything I had on my brain and then I forget because I'm nervous and I was like, oh, and after that I, I was like, oh, I forget to say this. Oh, I forget to say this. Um, it's hard to trust in others, as I told you. I remember when my dad hit my mom a lot. Police over there didn't support any anything at all, even if she was purple, those, those things. So when people come from other countries and they have the same experiences, they don't ask for help because they don't, they think that the community is not going to say anything or going to do anything. Over time, Badillo says she's learned that it's important to speak up and ask for support, even if it means doing so in a room full of white people. That's a message she's trying to share with other Latinos, among whom she often hears similar concerns. We are so afraid to to ask for help in so our community, like white people, don't know how can support us. If we don't talk, if we don't say what are our needs, they, they are not going to know in what way we can support. So Voices is making... Other evidence of this growing shift in self-confidence and civic and political power looks like more immigrants starting successful local businesses. Jose de Jesus Bocardo Suzano, who, like Badillo, is from Tlaxcala, is the owner of Juanita's Market, a Mexican-style grocery store that opened in Victor, Idaho, in the summer of 2021. My grandmother and my grandfather had a store, and my grandfather died, and my grandmother ran the store by herself. She had to close it. And for as long as I can remember, I've been thinking about that. Bocardo Susano moved to Titan Valley about 26 years ago, making a living by working in construction, one of the key industries that employs a disproportionate number of immigrants in the region. For years, he saved as much as he could from his construction work until he and his wife, Patricia, were able to afford rent and get the store off the ground. We didn't know anything about this business, so little by little we investigated and looked for suppliers. She and I will talk about looking here or there, finding merchandise, finding a fridge, finding the products, but we didn't have anything, nothing. Now, the market is quickly becoming a favorite for fresh tamales, tacos, and grocery staples among customers like Cosme Cayetano Andres. I bought a piñata to give to a boy who was having a birthday today, and sweets and mole. We like mole oaxaqueño because we're from Oaxaca, and tortillas because you can never be without tortillas in a Mexican household. Immigrant and first-generation communities are also asserting their belonging in the Tetons in a more typically Jackson way, too, by getting into outdoor recreation, including winter sports that might not have been possible in their home countries. De La Cruz, the school bus driver, started cross-country skiing about three years ago. I spent a lot of time doing nothing in the winter. No sports, no exercise. I spent it indoors because I didn't like the winters. As my children grew up, I realized that they like all winter activities, like skiing. So with some encouragement from his family, 
and after an injury stopped him from playing soccer, he got on board with exploring the outdoors. I think for 20 years, 19 years, they invited me to go camping. They invited me to go hiking. They invited me to do activities outside. But I never accepted because the first thing I wanted to do every weekend was play soccer. And I always said no until after I got hurt. My first hike was at Ski Lake on Teton Pass, and I loved it. My second was at Delta, a very beautiful lake, but a much harder walk. De La Cruz and his wife, Miriam Morion, also helped start a hiking group for Latino adults called Camina Conmigo, which translates to walk with me. We invited people and friends to join the walks and get out of their homes because you see that the stress is very strong. That's how Camina Conmigo started, and it's gaining strength. There are more members. We have a page on Facebook. This came because uh, my friend Norma invited me to one uh, hike, and then it was to the Sleeping Indian. Can you imagine my first hike for eight hours with not the right shoes to go, but I, I enjoy very much. And then after, during the pandemic, I shared to my husband that it was fantastic to go in that hike and no more people because we... Morion also teaches a Spanish language cardio strength class twice a week at the Teton County Recreation Center. The class invites all of the parents from the Children's Learning Center, where the Head Start and Early Head Start child development programs serve families that meet federal poverty guidelines. With a $5 drop-in rate, it's more affordable than most fitness classes in Jackson. De La Cruz is a frequent participant. Every time I feel more tired, but I have to do it so that at the end of the day, at the end of the hour of the class, I feel good. Good physically and ready for tomorrow to start the bus early. Half of the gym is also open for kids to play in during the workout. And other local organizations like Coombs Outdoors focus exclusively on youth access to recreation. Coombs was founded about 10 years ago out of the realization that Latino children were vastly underrepresented on the ski slopes and hiking trails of Jackson Hole. Today, the organization serves 250 kids a year through programs that introduce them to skiing, hiking, rock climbing, and more. In March, the group's end-of-ski-season Coombsfest drew dozens of students, volunteers, and families to the top of the gondola at Snow King Mountain. Coombs also runs an internship program for high schoolers, giving students a chance to gain professional experience at community organizations and in the outdoor recreation industry. Julie Gonzalez made her way into the National Park Service through a similar internship opportunity called NPS Academy a paid program available to 18 to 30-year-olds from backgrounds that have been historically underrepresented in the Park Service. I'm a first-generation Mexican-American. Um, both my parents are immigrants from Mexico, and I identify as a Latina. In 2015, Gonzalez did her first parks internship at Glacier National Park in Montana. And I just really fell in love with the people, the park itself. It was where I first did uh, things like hiking and backpacking and just uh, experiencing a different landscape. Um, being from Texas, where it's high desert, El Paso, it was just very new and different. Um, and I was able to share...
After Glacier, Gonzalez worked several seasonal parks jobs, including spending one winter as an education associate at Grand Teton National Park. Last year, she got hired to come back as the park's full-time community engagement coordinator. Now she helps run the annual NPS Academy orientation in Jackson Hole each March. And she says she's proud to be helping push for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion within the agency. It's also something she thinks about every day when she puts on her green and gray parks uniform, including, of course, the iconic wide-brimmed ranger hat. So for many, the uniform represents tradition. And when you see this uniform, you automatically recognize, like, that's a person who can help me and is there to support my experience as I navigate through this national park site. But for others, a uniform like this can be intimidating and not and not have that welcoming sense. Um, and so when I put on the uniform, I recognize that I'm representing both the National Park Service and the, um, the community, the Latinx community and those that are underrepresented. And so when I'm in it, I hold that responsibility and am able to create space for others to, so that when they see me in the uniform, they not only feel welcomed, but they can also see themselves in it and they can see themselves engaging in this space. Progress towards racial equity in Jackson and elsewhere can often feel slow, painfully slow as the experience of too many immigrants and Americans of color repeatedly show us. But as any longtime local can attest, Jackson is not the same town it was in the 90s. There are more services and more engagement with the Latino community than ever before. Rich, from Voices JH, also points out how things are changing within the community as it ages. People have now been here a long time. And with that, it means that they have adult children who are coming back and really investing in this community and making it a place they want to live in and and thrive in. And I think that has really kind of shifted in the last maybe five years. And I think they have a very different experience than maybe their first-generation parents. Unfortunately, the biggest crisis-level challenge now facing the Latino community is the same one that plagues a large swath of local workers housing. Pedro Popocal Diaz started working in construction when he moved to Jackson from Tlaxcala in the early 2000s. He's been renting a room in one of his boss's apartments for the same rent for about six years, and he knows he's one of the lucky ones. When I arrived, the rents were around $400, at most $600 per bedroom. Now it's $1,000 to $1,500 or $1,600. So it's gone too high for just a bedroom. Separately, you also have to pay for electricity and the internet. Popocal Diaz followed two of his older brothers to Jackson after they found work here. But with rents rising and their visas expiring, they recently had no choice but to return to Mexico. In short, he says, it's just gotten too hard for many Latinos to find housing. Pero sí he visto a los amigos, a los conocidos que... I have seen this with friends, acquaintances, and now my brothers too. The rent is very expensive. Very often they raise the rent, or they're going to sell, so we don't have the time to look. They simply come and say, we are going to sell, or it is going to be remodeled. So you almost have to run away. 
Both Badio and Rich from Voices say they're seeing the same thing. A lot of people is just leaving Jackson because they don't have the opportunity to find a place to live. And it's sad because they would like to stay here, but they, they can't. We're recently hearing, or I'm hearing through the grapevine, of a lot of housing insecurity right now, a lot of families getting evicted and having literally nowhere to go. And it's unfortunate because there is a lot of resources to support them if they needed to make rent and they needed help with those payments or first month, last month deposit. Like there's the money there to support and get families into safe housing, but there's just no housing. Between the struggle for renters and now a crippling rise in property taxes for existing homeowners, there's a lot of talk in Jackson about who can afford to make a home here. If trends continue as they are, who will be left? And what does Jackson risk losing as it pushes out everyone except the ultra-wealthy, a group that Farrell's research found was overwhelmingly white? The 2020 census showed a slight dip in the percentage of Teton County residents who identify as Hispanic or Latino compared to 2010. Part of that could be an undercount because of fears over the Trump administration's attempt to put a citizenship question on the form. But it would also be unwise not to consider ethnic diversity as one of the community characteristics in peril as Jackson becomes increasingly unaffordable for the average resident. For KHOL and CO, I'm Kyle Mackey. This episode was made in collaboration with Steo, Stewards of the Mountain Life. It was reported and produced by Kyle Mackey, with additional reporting by Natalie Shakar and Alicia Unger. KHOL's Will Walkie and Emily Cohen provided editorial and production support. The episode contained original music scoring by Sheena and Jacob Ferguson. Creative direction and executive production support provided by Steo's Liz Barrett and Jesse Vanderlinden. Facet's logo designed by Kika McFarlane.